Welcome to the Daily Bible Podcast, a show intended to help you get more out of your everyday time in the Word. This is a ministry of Compass Bible Church in North Texas, and if you'd like to join along with our daily Bible reading program, you can do so by going to compassntx.org and clicking on the Daily Bible Reading tab. Thanks for joining in for today's episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Boom. We are glad that you're back again. Yes, we are. And if Thank you, you. this is your first time, we're glad that you're here. Welcome for the first time. Welcome for the first time. You can go back and listen to our last few episodes that we put out there, and uh, make sure you tune in daily from this po- point forward, and, and we will continue to, to read the Bible together. That's right. We've got uh, an- another two passages today, Second Chronicles 10 through 12, and the rest of John 13. But speaking of John 13... Yeah, you should definitely consider listening to Seeds Family Worship. So I don't know how many plugs we're going to be doing during this podcast, but this is one that I was passionate about. When we closed uh, yesterday's podcast, we were talking about how Seeds Family Worship has this earworm song based on the passage that we read yesterday. So please do yourself a favor. Listen to Seeds Family Worship. There are some songs that are going to get stuck in your head, and you want them there. You can find them on Spotify, iTunes, any of the places that you listen to music. All iTunes, the places. Apple Music. Apple Music is it's not iTunes not anymore. what they call that, yeah. Yeah. Well, you can find them there. You can find them on YouTube, anywhere. And chances are, down the road, as our kids' ministry develops and thrives, you will find your kids coming home singing some songs from oh, most certainly. Seeds Family Worship. You know what they didn't have in Second Chronicles chapter t- 10 and through 12? Seeds family worship. Seeds family it was, worship. It was not there. Not it was there. Not there. And speaking of families. Oh. Yeah. I, Pastor Rod called me out for titling different passages in my Bible uh, <laughs> the other day. And I've got a title for this one, too. Uh, it's this, Like Father, Not Like Son. Ooh. Yep. Yep. Like Father, Not Like Son. Anyone because groaning? Yeah. Well, groan. <laughs> groan, but you'll remember it. Hopefully, you'll remember it's it. It's godly groaning. Because we had the 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 peak of King Solomon, right? Yes, I mean, we did. Solomon had largely a peaceful reign opulent reign. He had wisdom uh, to spare Queen Sheba, take her breath away with Berlin. The song was playing in the background, everything else. And then we get Rehoboam. And Rehoboam comes on the scene uh, and immediately in chapter 10 verse 1, he goes up to Shechem. Now Shechem is is, uh, significant for Israel because it was significant for for Abraham. It was one of the places where he was, uh, where he stopped and where he would worship. And then it was also significant for Joshua. Joshua reaffirmed the Mosaic covenant there in Shechem and it became kind of the de facto uh, unofficial capital of the north, if it, if you will. And so uh, Rehoboam goes there to kind of be installed as the king. Uh, and yet there's another character on the scene, and, and this is Jeroboam. And again, we don't get a lot about Jeroboam, just like we talked about in yesterday's reading. We don't hear a lot about Solomon's sins. We don't hear a lot about Jeroboam because he ends up with Israel. And the book of Chronicles is primarily about Judah. Um, and so, uh, but, but Jeroboam comes back and he comes back from Egypt. And the reason he was in Egypt is contained in first Kings chapter 11 In first Kings chapter 11, the prophet Ahijah had prophesied that he would become king of the Northern tribes, that, that God was going to tear away 10 of the tribes from, uh, from David's dynasty, from David's lineage. Uh, the, the tribe of Levi was the, the 12th tribe there. So you had Judah in the South, then you had Levi, then you had the 10 Northern tribes there. Uh, that followed after Jeroboam. Well, Jeroboam had to run for his life because Solomon wasn't happy about that. Rehoboam wasn't happy about that. And uh, and so he ended up down in Egypt until Solomon's death. Well, then he comes back and Jeroboam gathers, the the troops gathers the, uh, the people together and they go to Rehoboam and they go to Rehoboam with a request to say, hey, um, 
we want to know how you're going to rule us. What's this going to be like? And mm-hmm. they make that request, and there's two responses that, that uh, Rehoboam gets to choose from, one from the elders and one from the youth. And unfortunately for Rehoboam, he doesn't possess the wisdom of his father, and he ends up siding with the, the foolish answer, the youthful men who say, hey, you need to, to increase the, the uh, severity of the rule and reign. Solomon was too soft. You need to rule with harshness. That's all Israel needs to hear. They take off. They say, well, then we're not going to follow you. And they go away. And uh, what is in the white spaces in Chronicles is what happens with Jeroboam's reign. Um, he sets up these two golden calves, causes a lot of the priests to come back to, to Jerusalem, the faithful ones at least. And, uh, and things just go bad for Israel under Jeroboam's reign. Yeah, and there's there's several points in this chapter, all these chapters that are really important for us to see. And, and I guess one thought that came to my mind as I was reading this, I'm like, oh man, young people need to see what happened here. Because young men consulted with other young men. And I don't know, as, as I read this, and, and Pastor PJ, maybe you, you had thoughts about this too. There's nothing inherently sinful about what they say. There's this, okay, yeah, you're going to make a heavier burden. We're going we're gonna to lead you with strength and we're going to flex our muscles upon you. That's not necessarily sinful. But when it came to wisdom, he went to two audiences and he weighed the one that resonated with him the most more heavily. He weighed his friends uh, who were no doubt royalty. They were in the upper echelons of of Israel's community at that point. So uh, Rehoboam goes to his friends and they give him this terrible counsel. Young people and parents of young people, um, make sure that your sons and daughters, your grandkids know the value of wise counsel and know where to find that wise counsel. If you have grandparents involved in your kids' lives, great, put them in contact with them. Age doesn't necessarily guarantee wisdom, but it certainly hedges it for it. It hedges against foolishness because they've lived long enough to acquire some of that. All things considered, you want godly counsel from godly people. Rehoboam fails miserably here by not getting that. Yeah, and I think it's a, another contrast, not in, just in the foolishness and the wisdom, but in the, the humility and the pride. I think that's the other reason why he went with the advice of the, the young men is they were kind of puffing him up a little bit mm-hmm. going, hey, you, you flex. Look at you. You're the one in power now. You're the ruler. You're the you're the king. Do do what makes you look as, as powerful and as strong as you possibly can. And where we saw a lot of humility from Solomon, we see a, a lot of lack of humility here in Rehoboam. But yeah. In verse 10, too, just a quick note here. Verse 10, you have uh, you see some of the vulgarity of Rehoboam's friends listed here. Now, you may not be able to see this. So parents, talking to you for a second here. Verse 10. The friends of Rehoboam say something that you might just scratch your head about at first. Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. And then you shall say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. Pause for a second and think about that. My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. You might say, oh, that's pretty innocuous. Not really. It's more, more than likely a euphemism. And I'll leave you to fill in the details on what that means. But these are the kind of people that Rehoboam's hanging out with. He doesn't, to his credit, doesn't say this to the people. But his friends encourage him to use that very language. And we're thankful that the ESV translated that way because our podcast gets to keep a clean rating. That's right. <laughs> so there you go. Because there are other translations that don't say it that way. You're there, right. There are. And so parents, if you're not there with us yet, maybe go start comparing translations and then you'll be, oh, oh, okay. Yep. All right. Now I'm, I'm there. I get it now. Tracking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so chapter 11, that happens. The kingdom is divided. And, uh, or chapter 10, rather. Chapter 11, then, we get into... Um, Rehoboam initially wants to go attack Israel for what they've done, the northern tribes, and try to bring them back and restore things. God says no. 
And so Rehoboam builds up these cities. And what's happening there is he's trying to build up his defenses. And there's these 15 cities that he goes around building. And he's fortifying the defenses to really try to protect uh, Judah from the northern tribes and, and from other areas there. There's a couple notes of, of significance here. Chapter 11, verse 18 um, there's this focus on on the Davidic dynasty where it mentions that one of Rehoboam's wives was a descendant of David and that's unique because the the king's accounts and none of the other accounts mentioned that specific note but because the chronicler was so focused on uh, Judah and the Davidic dynasty he he includes that about this wife which is uh, unique there at least and then in verse 20 you'll see the name Absalom and maybe in your mind you thought oh this must have been one of David's son you know David's son Absalom and, and one of his offspring but we don't think that either because we know that the only child of Absalom to, to grow up into adulthood would have been Tamar from what we understand. And so this was probably another Absalom. In fact, there's a couple of other names given for this individual in other parts of the scripture. So uh, just some, some clarification there. It's, it's helpful for us. Sometimes we hear a name in the Bible and we forget that there were more than one person named that name at that time. And so this is probably not Absalom, son of David, but a, a different Absalom at the time. But in chapter 11, uh, Rehoboam is basically kind of fortifying himself there in, uh, in Jerusalem. So what would you make then, Pastor PJ, of the fact here that in verse 4, that God is the one behind this separation between Israel and Judah? You've got the wickedness, or the foolishness rather, it's not wicked, it's folly. Rehoboam's folly in making this terrible decision, and they separate, and now God says, hey, don't go fight them because I'm the one behind it. Yeah, I think this is the beginning, the birth pangs of what would be ultimately the, the, the greatest judgment at this time against Israel, which would be exile, which is coming down the, down the road. Um, but the, the, the drifting of Israel had already started under Solomon's reign with the foreign wives and the worship of false gods. And then you have Jeroboam just blatantly lead Israel astray. In fact, Jeroboam becomes kind of the, 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 the gold standard in a bad sense for right. all of the, the, the horrible Israelite kings after this. So this is a, an, a sovereign... Uh, execution of God's judgment against Israel. This is the, the the tame side of his judgment before it gets even worse because Israel refuses to repent. Um, they still had the opportunity to repent and they knew the roadmap. I mean, we just talked about that a few episodes ago when we talked about when Solomon dedicated the temple and said, hey, will you hear from us, hear from us when we stray, hear from us when we do this? And God said, yes, I will, if you are, are obedient and faithful and actually do repent. And if you don't, mm-hmm. though, you can expect my judgment. Well, they didn't hear and here's judgment being doled out by God. Yeah, it, it's important to see for, for all of us that even though Rehoboam is fully responsible for his folly, God is ultimately holding all the cards. He is the one who is working all things out according to the counsel of his will, his great and, and perfect purposes. But we would look at them and say, okay, these two things may not look like they fit together, but there is a compatibility there. Uh, Rehoboam is responsible. God is ultimately the one who's working all things together according to the counsel of his will. Right, right. Is God completely sovereign? Yes. Is Rehoboam completely responsible? Yes. Yep. Yep. Chapter 12, real quick, and then we'll jump into our New Testament text. Chapter 12, you get just something that encourages me because uh, Rehoboam got comfortable, and as so often happens with us, right? When we get comfortable, we get the new house, we get the new job, we get things are going well. Danger of success yeah, and accomplishment. We, we begin to drift, and we think we're good. We don't need God, and God reminds Rehoboam in a very severe way that he does because he raises up Egypt to come and, uh, and threaten the safety of, uh, of, of Jerusalem, of Judah there. And what does Rehoboam do? He repents. 
And he, along with the princes of Israel, his family repents. The leaders of Israel uh, or of Judah there repent, and God relents and uh, and turns away. He hears as he had promised he would hear um, when he promised back in Second Chronicles chapter seven, "I will hear and I will listen and I will I will restore. I will I will forgive." And he does that. And so that's this is a sign of God's hum uh, not humbleness, <laughs> a sign of God's faithfulness. Um, to the things that he promised there in uh, in Second Chronicles. Yeah, so important to see all throughout the book of Second Chronicles, you begin to see God repeat a theme uh, through the chronicler, and it's the theme of humility. When humility is exercised, it's like God gets excited and he steps in to do good things for those who humble themselves. So in verse six, they humble themselves, and in the next verse, God responds to their humility and says, "Since they've done this, I'm not going to destroy them." All throughout the scriptures, you see the contrast between the pride and arrogance displayed by the wicked and the humility and meekness displayed by the righteous. And in a month like like this one that we're in now, where there's a certain quality that Christians would stand against, mm-hmm. we would say, hey, that's that's not good. That's not right. That's self-destructive. It's not something we should exercise or celebrate. No, to the contrary, we should be the kind of people that are humble and not proud. James 4.10, God uh, opposes the proud. But who does he give grace to? The humble. Mm. If you want to have more of God's grace in your life, let it be that you are exercising humility and watch what God does on your behalf. God loves humility. He's Mm. attracted to it, one might say. He's attracted to it. And through Christ, we see it modeled. Mm. I mean, that's that's the, the, the paradigm of true humility. And Christ called us to follow that when he said, you know, a servant is not greater than his master. When Jesus said he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, when Jesus said, whoever wishes to be first should be last, should be the servant of all among you. And really, in our New Testament reading, we're seeing that really come through and that paradigm really come through uh, with Jesus even before the, the pinnacle of that, which is the cross. But in the upper room, we talked about it in yesterday's reading. We talked about the foot washing. And in the rest of John 13, which is our reading for the for today, we, we kind of see the significance of that being unpacked. And you see the humility again where Jesus is is there and he's observing and instituting the Last Supper. And in the context of that, he says, look, one of you is going to betray me. One of the ones he just washed the feet of is going to betray me. And it causes panic amongst 11 of the disciples, at least, because they're all going, who is it? Who is it? Who is it? Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And then Jesus makes that statement. He says, it's the one in who, who I, I dip the bread and, and give it to, to him. And I've always thought to myself, man, why didn't they stop Judas when Jesus did that? Because it says in the text, he dipped the morsel and gave it to to Judas. Verse 26, he says, so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him and Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. And I remember thinking to myself growing up, man, if I had been there, well, I'm thankful I wasn't there, right? Because this is all part of God's sovereign plan uh, unfolding. And Mm -hmm. I think what we see so beautifully here in John 13 is that Jesus is fully sovereign and fully in control of the outworking of, of God's sovereign plan. And, and yet at the, the same time, he's, he's protecting the, 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 that plan and making sure that it would come to pass. Uh, we see that his control when he identifies Judas and says, you're going to go do this. And then we also see him protecting the, the, the cross by allowing Judas to go do that. And even I think maybe passively protecting Judas from what the disciples would do if they found out what he was actually going to go do. Mm. I mean, we saw Peter's response in the garden when Malchus comes up and when he it cuts some ears pulls out. out his sword and he is a horrible shot. <laughs> yes, he gets his ear. And so we can only think of what they would have done knowing what Judas was going to do in that moment. Yeah, and really cool to see why Jesus sets it up this way, too. In verse 19, he's like, hey, I, 
yeah, someone's going to betray me and I'm going to show you all these things. I'm going to display this for you so that when it does take place, get this, he wants them to believe. Now, it's easy to look at them and say, well, don't they kind of already believe Jesus? They've, they've left their they've left their jobs. They left their families. They're following you. Don't they believe already? Yes. And I think the important thing for you to see here is that God is never satisfied with your current state of your growth. He's always seeking to take you deeper, to have a more profound, more expansive trust in who he is and what he's up to. So even through Judas' betrayal, he's seeking to help his disciples mature into greater trust and followership. Satan entered this guy. He's calling his shots though in advance and saying, look, guys, I'm about to swing for the fences. It's going to go over here. That way, you know, I'm in control. I'm the one who's running this show and I'm doing it because I love you guys. Yeah, and, and that that love that he's demonstrating there is the paradigm that he wants his followers to, to follow after. And it's in this passage that we read in, in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, right on the heels of washing the, the disciples' feet, right on the heels of the, the institution of the Lord's Supper, right on the heels of Judas going out to betray him. Jesus looks at his followers, the ones left, and he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So in their rearview mirror, they're thinking, okay, foot washing, all right, fine. If I have to do that, I'll do that. But in Jesus' full perspective, fuller perspective, he's he's got the cross in view here, and and the disciples would understand that fully on the backside of that, and, and, and after all that took place. But I've always been flabbergasted by verse 35. There's a word for you, flabbergasted. It truly, that's how I feel about verse 35. Because he says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And that's like, one of those things that I've always thought, okay, if your doctrine is right, or if you carry the right version of the Bible, or if you've got enough scripture memorized, right. or and those things are all good and important, but important. it's amazing that Jesus is, the thing that's going to stand out to people is if you love one another. That's amazing. And, and even we've been preaching through with our church, Revelation, the, the churches in Revelation, and, and the first one out of the gates is one that looks so good doctrinally theologically, that they've got those boxes checked. Mm-hmm. If you looked at that, you'd go, that's a church that loves Jesus, but Jesus says that's the one thing that they were missing is they said, you've, he said, you've abandoned your, your first love. He's, you've lost your first love. You've lost the thing that distinguishes and makes a Christian stand out from the world. And that is a love for God and the love for one another. And it, it's just always convicted me here when he goes, this is what is going to cause other people to know that you're a believer, your love for other people. Right. And that this is going to look so clear to people in the way that you do, you demonstrate this. I think what Jesus is painting a picture of is a sacrificial service toward others. Now, that's not all that it encompasses, but it's not less than that. There is a kind of love that the Christian body should have for one another that others can see it and say, man, those guys are different. They care for one another in real, tangible ways. And would our church be like that, Pastor PJ? I think Mm -hmm. we're hoping, we're praying for that. We want you guys to have the kind of love for each other that is more than just a cultural kind of expectation but rather a love that is birthed from the new birth, what Jesus has done for us and through us by his spirit. Now, we're praying for you guys that you would have a John 13, 35 kind of love for one another. And I think there's even an opportunity as we think through application um, on the heels of yesterday's reading, today's reading, for you guys to, to start thinking about and talking together as a family. Okay, what would it look like for us to love one another the way that Christ loved us um, in some practical ways? Maybe there's an opportunity even for some some confession repentance if if you haven't been doing that and uh and thinking through what would that look like to to begin to to model more of that christ-like love for one another in our immediate families and then in our church family and then also for the the world around us so again thank you guys for for joining in for another episode we are uh, excited to be doing this it's it's a lot of fun on our end hopefully it's fun for you guys listening to it as well 
and uh, we'll be back again with another episode tomorrow.